Granite State Podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, I am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the Council, and I'm excited to bring you another great program. On this month's program, we sit down with David Sanger, New York Times National Security Correspondent, to talk about cyber conflict. David joined us on May 19th for the World Affairs Council Global Forum, where he shared his thoughts and insights on this important issue. We will also speak with Katrina Lantos-Sweat of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice to learn more about what this international human rights organization does from their office in Concord, New Hampshire. Let's get started. We are here with David Sanger, National Security Correspondent of the New York Times, here in Manchester, New Hampshire, to talk about his new book, The Perfect Weapon. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here and great to be back in Manchester, Tim. Thanks. Can you give us a little bit of a taste of what your book is about and why it is such an important topic to be talking about? So The Perfect Weapon is a book about how cyber conflict, not cyber warfare, but cyber conflict, has become the primary means that countries undercut each other, influence each other, and reach out and try to attack each other without prompting a military response. You know, no one these days, not the Iranians, not the North Koreans, not the Russians, certainly not the Chinese, want to take the U.S. military on directly. But they're calculating that the U.S.'s greatest vulnerability is through the fact that we are such a wired society. And they're also calculating that over time, the United States will actually end up losing the cyber war because our vulnerabilities are growing faster than our offensive capability. At the same time, the United States is using cyber much more aggressively than most Americans recognize. Not all that frequently, but when we have used it, against Iran's nuclear centrifuges, against ISIS, against the Russians in just the midterm elections in recent times, we've begun to demonstrate that this is becoming a preferred weapon for American presidents. And now three, George Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, have all ordered significant American cyber operations. You call cyber operations the perfect weapon. Why did you choose that title for these types of ops? It's a great question. One reason is that cyber is dirt cheap. For uh, nuclear weapons, you need millions of dollars, maybe billions, big facilities, plutonium and uranium, which are hard to come by. For cyber, you need some laptops, some millennials, a case of Red Bull, maybe some pizza, some stolen code from the National Security Agency, and there's a lot of that around. The second is, it's deniable. You know, in the Cold War, you could go into a big cave in Colorado Springs, and you could see where missiles were being launched from at the United States. In cyber, you have no idea, because all you're seeing usually is the last bounce that the code takes before it hits you. The third thing is, you can calibrate cyber attacks. You can dial them up and down. With nuclear weapons, you might be able to adjust the yield, but basically it's an on-off switch. You've either been hit by a nuclear weapon or you haven't, which is why, fortunately, people have not used nuclear weapons since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In cyber, it's more like the thermostat on your wall. 
And so countries can try to adjust an attack in an effort to avoid a military response. That's all what makes it the perfect weapon. Cyber is a perfect weapon for both big states and terrorist organizations and other non-state actors. Can you give us some examples of the thermostat effect that you mentioned of varying levels of attacks that we've, we've seen to date? Sure. I mean, interestingly, cyber has not been used by terrorists very much mm-hmm. yet. The closest is that ISIS used cyber in an effort to recruit but they didn't do many cyber attacks of the kind you would see. So let's think about what's an example of adjustable attacks. Well, first of all, there's just theft of information, which I would barely call a cyber attack, but that's how the Chinese got the designs for the F-35 fighter. It's how they've stolen so many industrial secrets. We've seen lots of other examples where cyber is used for surveillance purposes. The more interesting attacks have been cyber against physical facilities that otherwise you would have to bomb or sabotage. So there's Olympic Games, which was the American operation against Iran's nuclear enrichment sites, started in 2007, 2008, and of course in 2010, it became evident when the code called Stuxnet got out. There was the attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment, which was done by the North Koreans. There were attacks on American financial institutions, banks, to mess them up, and an American dam, actually, outside of New York that was done by the Iranians. All of these were examples of somewhat calibrated attacks. The North Koreans figured we weren't going to go to war with them for going in and melting down 70% of Sony Pictures' computer systems. They were right. Hamas guessed that Israel would not go to war with them a few weeks ago or do a military strike when they went in and did a cyber attack on the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. They were wrong. Mm -hmm. The Israelis sort of crossed a Rubicon and destroyed a uh, a building that they believed the cyber attackers were uh, operating from. Yeah, I saw that article last week and I believe that was the first time that a direct cyber attack has has led to a direct response from the people who were attacked, which is really interesting. It is. The the closest analog we've had for it was an American-born or American citizen terrorist who was helping do some attacks and so forth for ISIS. So they weren't really cyber attacks, but he was their cyber guru and was their spokesman. And he was hit by a drone. But this attack by the Israelis really did cross new territory. Do you see that as the future of cyber response, we'll call it? Or do you think it will continue to be cyber versus cyber? I don't think it'll continue to be cyber versus cyber. And cyber versus cyber is not usually the norm. Because one of the things about cyber attacks is that they favor the least wired society attacking the most wired society. So think of North Korea and the United States. If North Korea does more attacks, like the Sony attack or like some others they've done in the U.S., what are we supposed to do? Go back and attack their IP addresses, their internet protocol addresses in North Korea? There are more IP addresses in any two blocks of Manchester, New Hampshire, than there are in all of North Korea. So you would have to come up with another way to go after something that they actually felt strongly about. We already have, we revealed in the Times a few years ago, a year and a half ago, 
that the United States conducted a very sophisticated cyber and electronic warfare attack against North Korea's missile program. And you'll remember that a few years ago, their missiles were falling into the sea pretty rapidly. We don't know what percentage of those are because of the cyber and electro warfare techniques used by the U.S., but we think at least some of them were. So you speak about deniability of attacks. However, a lot of the reporting out there is Russia did this, Iran did this, North Korea did this. How are we identifying and proving the case that it did come from a certain actor? So attribution has gotten better. It's not a perfect art, and the biggest problem is it takes a while to do well. You know, again, with a missile, you can sort of track it by radar. With cyber, you have to do a few things. First, you have to look at the code and see, have we seen this before? And if so, from whom? Coders leave signatures the way criminals leave fingerprints or DNA. The second is you have to look at motive. We thought for a long time that a fascinating cyber attack against a petrochemical facility in Saudi Arabia must have been done by the Iranians. When the good attribution work was done, it turned out it looked like it was probably done by the Russians. So part of the difficulty here is making sure that there isn't a false flag. In other words, that one country isn't imitating the style of another. This is frustrating for American presidents because they'll call a meeting the afternoon of a cyber attack and say, tell me who did this. And the answer they get is, well, boss, we think it was X country, but give us a month or two and we'll be back to you with some certainty. Well, if you want to exact some retribution, make people pay a price because deterrence has been lacking here, that's a big problem. So one final question for you. Why does this matter to the everyday American? And what can we do to make our country safer? Well, it's a great question. So cyber attacks are interesting because most Americans have been victimized by them even in the most minor of ways. If you shopped at Target, someone got your credit card numbers because they came in through the air conditioning system, made the leap to the retail system, and got what they got. If you gambled at the Sands Casino, it got struck by the Iranians. If you banked at Bank of America or many other big institutions, it got hit by the Iranians a number of years ago. So we've all seen the sort of nuisance level. Here's what we don't know. Is the future of cyber conflict the big Pearl Harbor-sized attack that you would hear people like uh, Leon Panetta when he was defense secretary talk about? Or is it much more subtle data manipulation? It's really data manipulation that we were worried about when the Russians got into the registration systems for most of the 50 states. It's data manipulation you worry about if some foreign force got into the database of all the blood types of American soldiers and sailors or if they got into hospital records. With very subtle steps, you could cause great chaos and even significant loss of life, which we haven't had so far in cyber. So part of the issue here is what will this look like? And you know, I remind people, and we'll at a presentation here in Manchester later on tonight, that we are sort of at the end of World War I for cyber. In other words, that's the moment when airplanes were used tactically but didn't have any decisive effect on the war. World War I would have ended the same way. By World War II, the weapon had been refined enough and combined with other weapons, including nuclear weapons, 
which airplanes delivered, that it moved from being a tactical weapon to a strategic one. And we have to have the humility to recognize that we have no idea where cyber is going to be 30 years from now. We know what the delivery system is. We don't really know what the warhead will be. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me before our big event tonight. We really appreciate you making the, the trip up here. We, again, are here with David Sanger, National Security Correspondent of the New York Times. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Atlantis Foundation for Human Rights and Justice is a local organization with a truly global reach. Founded in memory of the late Tom Lantos, this organization works around the world to support human rights through a wide range of programs. We took the time to sit down with Dr. Katrina Lantos-Sweat to learn more about their efforts around the world. We are here with Dr. Katrina Lantos-Sweat of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Can you give us a little background about the organization and what you guys do? Right. Well, my father, as many of your listeners may know, was the only Holocaust survivor ever elected to Congress and ended up founding the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which was really the premier body within the U.S. Congress promoting human rights issues and causes. And this really grew out of the horrific experiences of his own youth. And it just made him both a very passionate advocate for human rights and a very fearless advocate. So when he passed away, I very much had a desire to continue this legacy of standing up and fighting for human rights and justice globally. And we decided to establish this foundation basically to to carry forward his legacy. And we are now in our 11th year, I can hardly believe it. (laughs) And it's been really a, a privilege and a very meaningful experience to be able to work on a range of human rights issues really across the globe. Can you give our audience a little bit of a taste of what you guys are currently working on? Well, the Lantos Foundation, along with several other human rights organizations, recently commissioned really a groundbreaking study on Putin's political prisoners, basically, how the Kremlin has criminalized dissent as a means of targeting those who are standing up for democracy and basic human rights rule of law in Russia. This was a major report that we just released, and it is, I think, a a really very serious and substantive piece of work. This is the first time all in one place the range of prisoners of conscience in Russia under Putin have been sort of cataloged, their stories told, and what we do in the report is we also identify perpetrators because the human rights community received an important new tool a few years ago when the Magnitsky Justice and Accountability Law was passed, which provides a means of imposing sanctions not just sort of broadly, but specifically on those who are identified as being complicit in committing human rights abuses against specific targets. Six weeks earlier, we published another very important report called The Hater Next Door. And this was done in conjunction with one of our partners, uh, Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute. And this report is part of what we anticipate will be an ongoing project monitoring and publicizing online hatred and incitement 
towards the Jewish community, people of color, and other minority communities. And it's part of, I think, a broad movement we're seeing all around us. I mean, Facebook recently has taken steps to deplatform certain far-right inciters of hate. And we think that this report is really critically important. So many acts of hate now begin in the context of online incitement where we read things that we know are just not right. They've sort of crossed a line between, eh, you know, that's just an obnoxious, horrible, objectionable human being sort of venting to something that strikes us as deeply disturbing. And so we sort of are trying to begin a movement that we are calling Read Something, Report Something, which is kind of an online companion to see something, say something. Um, so those would be two examples. And you know, it needs to be noted, obviously, in the context of the United States, we cherish, really more than any other country on the face of the earth, we cherish freedom of speech and freedom of expression. We have robust protections, both in our Constitution and in various other legal frameworks, to provide the broadest possible scope for people in a free society to freely express themselves. And that's one of the strengths of our society. And so we don't kid ourselves that it's going to be easy, not only for the Lantos Foundation, but all groups and organizations working on this very real problem to find that careful path that really helps us to identify bona fide threatening incitement and to deal with it and to address it in a timely way. So those would be two recent examples of very concrete initiatives. I'd also be happy if you're interested or your viewers to talk about some of our more legacy-like programs, things that are ongoing. Yeah, I know that you have three sort of big areas, the Lantos Human Rights Prize, your Congressional Fellows Program, and the, the Frontline Fund. And those are all really great programs, I think, that are quite interesting. Yes, and well, you know, and we have some others. I'll talk a little bit about those, but in addition to those kind of pillars, we also have an annual Lantos Rule of Law Lecture, which we do in conjunction with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. We have an annual Solidarity Sabbath initiative that we launched a few years ago. When we initially established the foundation, we had a few basic ideas, you know, things we wanted to sort of be able to characterize our work by. And one was the idea of educating and mentoring the rising generation of people who we hope will become human rights leaders, activists, maybe even a few of them human rights heroes, you never know. And so the Lantos Congressional Fellows Program was sort of geared at providing an opportunity for either young recent graduates of a university or even those in their early professional years to do a four-month fellowship in the United States Congress focused on human rights issues, but also giving them a chance to see how the U.S. government works, how a congressional office works and be part of that experience. So that's been a wonderful program. Our annual Lantos Human Rights Prize, which we have been privileged to give to an incredibly, I don't know, I don't want to use the word glittering, but I guess distinguished <laughs> array of laureates, is geared towards providing that inspirational component, you know, holding up as models that we would all seek to emulate. So that's been a wonderful initiative. Then our Frontline Fund is kind of almost just the opposite. It's where we try to provide financial support to those small unsung heroes. So the organizations that receive Frontline Fund grants from the Lantos Foundation 
are not the big names, are not the powerful institutions for the most part, because we're not, you know, a $200 million foundation that can give out $10 million a year. I, I would love to become one. But we wanted to provide those small grants to kind of, if you will, mom and pop human rights advocates. Very often in, in remote parts of the world, you have people who are doing really vital human rights work out of their kitchen. And for them, a you know, several thousand dollar grant in support of perhaps a documentary they're working on or a reporting initiative really can be meaningful. And so that's been wonderful because it's connected us to these everyday heroes. A rule of law lecture, which as I say, we initiated a few years ago, is an important one from my perspective because we think of human rights as addressing very tragic situations. We think of human rights as defending fundamental universal human rights, but it is not possible to do either of those things absent rule of law. When governments can ignore their own laws and ignore international law and trample upon it, when the mechanisms of justice become corrupted, Russia is a very good example of this. You know, they have something they call Kremlin justice or telephone justice in Russia. Rule of law is intimately connected to the protection of human rights. And we're excited to have this annual quite distinguished lecture. For a final question, what can you tell us is a major international human rights issue that is not being well covered right now? That's a good question, and I think the answer that I would want to share with your audience is the importance of internet freedom. That is another issue that has been a key initiative of the Lantos Foundation. Internet freedom is focused on supporting technologies and mechanisms that enable people living in closed societies, and China would be the chief example of this, to be able to safely, anonymously circumvent the, again, using China as our example, the Great Firewall of China, to be able to access information that the Chinese government doesn't want them to read. People are often imprisoned, as we say, behind these digital walls. And what's been very frustrating to me as somebody who cares very deeply about this issue is that with a very modest allocation of resources, and in a way that in no way involves overthrowing a government or getting involved militarily to sort of try and change things within a society. We really have the power by funding these very brilliant and very brave and very idealistic innovators to create, as I say, technologies that can enable people in closed societies to freely access the internet that you and I now take so for granted. We've been working to get what used to be called the BBG, the Broadcasting Board of Governors. That's the US government agency responsible for things like Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, um, Radio Marti, to fund these anti-censorship technologies. And it really hasn't been happening. Congress has written appropriations authorizing the successor to the BBG to fund these kinds of technologies up to $50 million a year. And when we stop to consider that while radio is still an important means of reaching people in closed societies, huge percentages of people now obtain their news through the internet. 
and the agency has consistently refused to follow through on congressional intent. We played an important role in getting Congress to provide the authorization in appropriations legislation to permit them to do that. And we are frustrated in the extreme that they have. And this is a, you know, an interesting example of where you have an important human rights issue. The technology is there to make that possible for hundreds of millions. Right now, only tens of millions can use it because these groups that have created these technologies simply don't have the bandwidth. So I feel that's an under-discussed issue. I really do. At the end of the day, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, whether it's Cuba, you know, we could, Venezuela, there is only so much that outsiders, the United States, despite our best intentions, can or should do to try and bring about fundamental change in those societies. Because history has shown us that that kind of change for it to be successful, for it to be meaningful, and for it to be lasting, must at the end of the day be homegrown. So internet freedom, to, to get back to your <laughs> initial question, I think is, is a, an issue I care deeply about. We think it has great potential to empower people in difficult circumstances in closed societies. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. You guys are doing really great and wonderful work here. Thank we really you. appreciate it. We are here with Dr. Katrina Lantos-Sweat of the Lantos Foundation. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and I enjoyed the conversation. We are halfway through our first year of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about the council, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization located in Manchester, New Hampshire. We work to bring experts to New Hampshire to talk about top international issues to help people better understand the world around them. We feel that it is important for people to know what is really going on in the world, particularly in this day and age where disinformation online reigns supreme. As a local nonprofit, we are only able to continue our work through the generous support of our members, sponsors, and donors. Their generous support allows us to continue to engage the general public, high school students, and international visitors in our programs. We do hope that you will take the opportunity to donate to the Council's efforts. If you enjoy our speakers programs, our Global in the Granite State podcast, our Academic World Quest, or any of our other programs, please do visit our website www.wacnh.org to provide the Council with the vital support that we need. We are also a membership organization and would love to have you as a member. Finally, we are working with a number of presidential campaigns to set up opportunities for the people of New Hampshire to hear from candidates about their foreign policy platform. It is the role of every citizen to educate themselves about their choices in the presidential campaign. We hope you take the opportunity that New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary gives you to talk with candidates about what their administration's goals in the international realm would be. No matter who you vote for, the world will continue to present the U.S. with many challenges and opportunities. 
it is our responsibility to be prepared to best take advantage of what the world has to offer. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope that you enjoy them, and we hope to have the opportunity to engage with you at our events. Mm-hmm.